right. Good morning, everybody. Good. Y'all got an extra hour back, so you should be happy. And it's raining on the extra hour Sunday, which also seems like a blessing because you wake up and you think, I don't want to get out of bed. And then you don't have to. It's raining, and so you got a little extra time. So I expect some liveliness now as I come to preach. So turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter, no, wait a minute. Chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 32 through 35. We will have, uh, really, as we consider preaching here at Taylor's, we think of it at different times throughout the year. And so uh, our series on Build Your Church will be concluding next week. It'll be the last one in this part of Acts. And then we will uh, have a, a guest that will be with us on the 20th. I'm excited about and then we'll start after Thanksgiving our Christmas series from the book of Matthew. In January, we'll come back to Acts and pick up where we left off to, to keep going through it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing this up as we see how the Lord builds his church. And when we look to Acts 4, verse 32, we've come to a second summary of the ongoing life of the early church. The first summary was back in Acts 2 at the end of chapter 2 after the preaching at Pentecost after the spirit came that passage was preached here by some of our brothers uh, Josh Duncan preached that passage in this service just a few weeks ago 42 through 47 where Luke summarizes the life of the early church after Pentecost and now We've gone through chapter 3 and 4 where we've seen the, the hint of persecution that is coming to them. We saw that first instance where the Sanhedrin told them not to preach or speak, so they prayed for boldness. And we're going to get another summary here at the end of chapter 4. And this summary serves in a way to demonstrate the impact of the Holy Spirit in the everyday life and relationships of the people of God. Now, that's important for us because uh, sometimes we think how the Holy Spirit, we think of it in terms of Acts 2, how it comes in and these incredible things take place. They're, they're speaking in languages they had not learned. The people are hearing it in languages they did not know the others spoke. And so you see these great signs and wonders. And what we often forget is that it is the Spirit of God that empowers us for our everyday walk with the Lord Jesus. In quite seemingly normal things, it's the Spirit of God that powers us. And so here we see that. And I want to I enlist the help, if I can, of a Christian scholar named J.I. Packer. And what I consider to be the best book, if you're asking me, the best book on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that has been written in recent history, Keep in Step with the Spirit by J.I. Packer. Packer talks about the dependence that we have on the Spirit every day, clearly when he says this, the Christian life in all its aspects intellectual and ethical, devotional and relational, upsurging in worship and outgoing in witness. The Christian life in all its aspects is supernatural. Only the Spirit can initiate and sustain it. So apart from Him or apart from the Spirit, not only will there be no lively believers and no lively congregations, there will be no believers and no congregations at all. 
Packer is making it clear that not only is it the Spirit that saves us and redeems us through the application of what Christ has done for us on the cross and resurrection, it is also the Spirit that empowers us for our everyday walk, our everyday life that we have. And so the church of Jesus Christ is built by God's Spirit working in the everyday life of the believer. That's how it's built. And so in our passage this morning, I think we will see three ways that the Spirit empowers us every day for our everyday walk as his church. So let's read this passage together. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Luke writes, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as any had need. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it teaches us, molds us, and shapes us. So today, God, take your word and uh, by your spirit, apply it to our hearts and lives. Everybody that has come into this room this morning, Father, has come with different things going on, with different uh, events in their life, with heavy burdens, Father, with, with deep stress that they may be dealing with. So God, I pray this morning that they find relief uh, from all of those things as they trust in you by your spirit. God, help us as we seek to live, live every day for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. The first way that the Spirit empowers the church to live every day is that the Spirit produces unity within the church. The Spirit produces unity within the church. In verse 32, it says, Now the full number, all of those who had believed, that's going back to Acts chapter 2. We've seen the passage there where it mentions some 3,000. We've seen the passage now where, in, in chapter 3 where it gets up to 5,000. And so here, Luke says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They're of one heart and soul. It's really hard for us to overemphasize the importance of unity within the body of Christ. It's really hard for us to overemphasize that. In fact, it's important that we continue to talk about it. When we look back uh, to Jesus' ministry on earth, it was Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, right? He, he's, he goes off to the garden with his disciples, and he prays with them that night. It was Jesus who prayed for unity. This was the center focus of his prayer the very night that he was betrayed. betrayed. In John chapter 17, if you're familiar with John 17, you'll recognize that entire chapter is the prayer of Jesus on that night. And in John chapter 17, verse 11, he, he uh, prays to the Father, Holy Father, speaking of his disciples who will become the apostles, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. The central focus of his prayer is for the unity of his disciples who would become his apostles. 
He's praying for unity at the very moment that Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed, the very last time he's together with them all in one place, this side of the cross. Jesus knows how the cross is going to rip at them and try to tear them apart. He'll even see that a little bit later. He knows all of those things. He prays for unity. He prays for unity of his apostles, his disciples. But as he continues... He continues in the prayer, and he shifts his prayer. He shifts his prayer in verse 20. He he had been praying for his disciples who had become the apostles, but in verse 20 he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who would believe in me through their word. That means today, as we gather in this place, in John 17, the Lord Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for all of those. We, if, if you remember back to that passage in chapter 2, there the church had gathered together to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. We come together every Sunday morning to open up the Word so that we may learn God's Word through the apostles' teaching of what they gave through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so here we've gathered together and we're learning through the teaching of the apostles. And so he says, I don't just pray for the apostles. I pray for all of those, which includes us, I pray for all of those who will believe through what they preach and proclaim. And what did he pray for them? I'm praying for all of them. And the very next verse he says that they may all be one. The prayer, the prayer of Jesus, uh, our great high priest, the, the most pastoral prayer in all of Scripture because this comes from the great shepherd, if you will. Our prayer of Jesus is that his people would be one. That they would be united. His prayers for them to be for unity. This unity has been given to God's people through Jesus Christ. If Jesus prays for it that very night for his disciples, again, it's hard for us to overestimate how important that is. And that unity that we have as his people has been given to us through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul explains this in Ephesians. His letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4. He prays that you should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. As he's praying to this church in Ephesus, his prayer for them is that they would be eager to maintain. Now understand the word choice here. He's not praying that they would attain unity. And you may have heard me mention this because if you were to get us all in a room and you were to say, all right, y'all get unified, that would be impossible. That would be impossible. All of us are feeling different today. All of us have different struggles. All of us have different opinions. All of us think we know how it should work and it might not work. All of us are either feeling great today or bad today based on how our football teams did yesterday. You understand? And so as we come in this place, it's really, if the Lord were to say, all right, Christians, y'all get unified, it would be impossible. But what's happened for us through the power of the Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ, we have received unity through him. In fact, we are all one in Christ. So therefore, we have been unified because Jesus has made us unified. He has brought us together. No matter what our background or our story is, and all of it is different, which is the beauty of God's grace, at the same time, we all come in here with one thing we know for sure, that we were sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. That unites us and brings us together. And so, as the church of Christ, you have received that unity in the name of Christ. Therefore, maintain it. 
maintain that unity. And maintaining the unity, in fact, he even says the unity of the Spirit, maintaining that unity takes work. Paul says you must maintain it with all humility. If you're going to maintain unity, you've got to realize you're not most important. Jesus is, and we come together for that. If we're going to maintain humility, we must do it with gentleness, Paul says. Not overriding someone or walking over them, but humility and gentleness. If we're going to maintain unity, then we must do it with patience, he says in Ephesians 4. If we're going to maintain unity, we must bear with one another in love. And we all know that there are some in our midst that we got to bear with a lot more than others. But Paul says that's the work that it takes. In fact, in Ephesians 4 verse 7, it says that grace that is needed to maintain unity is given to all. That grace is given to all of us. God gives us unity in Christ, and then he gives us the grace we need to maintain the unity as we work together for it. That's why I believe it is important for us as a church to continue to talk about it. It should not just be accepted. It should not just be something we take for granted. It shouldn't be just something we say happens. We have received the unity, but we work for it as well. We work for it in humility. We work for it in patience. We work for it in gentleness. We work for it in love. And we know as we go after it, God gives grace to all of us. And why is this work worth it? Why is this work worth it? If you go back to Jesus' prayer, Jesus says, I pray for them that they may be one. And then he says right after that, so that the world may believe. So that the world may believe. The work of unity is for the advancement of the gospel. We have a lot of jokes about our churches. A lot of jokes about churches having silly arguments. Y'all know how that goes, right? We fuss over this, we fuss over that, opinions here, opinions there. And unfortunately, we live up to those jokes. Quite frankly, my favorite joke of all time comes from the greatest, greatest comedian of all time, and that's Mr. Jerry Clower. I'm not sure if y'all know Jerry Clower, but he is the greatest comedian. God uh, rest in peace in heaven. Jerry Clower brings out one of my favorite routines about, about uh, conflict within the church. I'm going to tell it to you today. At a business meeting, the church is getting together. They're going to discuss the purchasing of a new chandelier for the church. And so Jerry Clower says of his Uncle Versi, who was, had been in the church for some time and had a voice, and he wasn't able to get there quite often, but he showed up that day at the business meeting of the church. He wanted to make sure his voice is heard, that no arguments take place. And as they begin to discuss this chandelier that they were going to purchase, they begin to fight with one another. So Uncle Versi spoke up with his voice of reason. He says, I don't know why y'all are fighting over a new chandelier. One, when we order it, no one in our church can possibly spell it. I don't know why you're fighting over this. None of us can even spell what a spell chandelier. So if we were to order it in the catalog, you couldn't even spell it. If we were to spell it right, he says, number two, if we were to spell it right, then nobody, nobody in our church could dare play a chandelier. <laughs> nobody knows how to play it. Y'all don't know how to spell it. Y'all don't know how to play it. And finally... He said, finally, he said, if we were to get it, nobody could spell it, nobody can play it, and I don't know why 
we are fighting over a chandelier when we desperately need lights in our church. (laughs) He's making fun of a culture that we create where we fight over anything and everything. And so ultimately, y'all know, unfortunately, this is true of many of our churches. We can name them maybe even close to us where we've heard this. We can name these arguments that have, that have gone on before in our church life. But y'all know who doesn't care about our disputes? Lost people around us. They don't care about what we're fighting over. They don't care if we're fussing about this. They don't care about fussing. In fact, when they hear that we are, the last thing they want to do is come and be a part of us. And so ultimately, we as a church should have no time for silly disputes or silly arguments that do not make a difference in the kingdom of God. We should have no argument that can come up that do not make a difference for those lost people who are out there. Because Jesus said, I pray that there'll be one so that the world may know. So that the world may know. And the only way we'll be one is if we let the Spirit of God live in our hearts so that we can be united for the glory of God to reach the nations. And so we, even at Taylor's here, we should have no time for silliness or nonsense. Only that the gospel be advanced. And when unity becomes our focus as we gather together, that spirit will breed ultimately generosity. So if number one is the spirit produces unity, number two, the spirit produces generosity within the church. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of that of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The second half of verse 32 here explains what I mean by generosity. And then we'll look at verse 34 in just a second. No one said that they had anything that belonged to them was as a was his own, but they had everything in common. Many people, especially within the last 150 years, have used this passage to argue something that this passage is not saying. They use this passage and say that, see, the Bible promotes communism or socialism, the idea of everything's got, everybody's got this in common. So it uses this passage to promote a governmental system that we have seen throughout the last 150 years of socialism or communism. That idea that, that, that all in common, so you give all that you have forced upon you. But here we want to notice a few things. The sharing of wealth in Acts chapter 4 was not forced by the government at all. This is not compulsory. This is not being forced to do this. They do it because they want to. They give of what they have because they desire to give it, not because some government or some power above them forces them to give it. They give what they have because they desire it. So it's not compulsory, forced, it's voluntary. They give what they want because they want to. And then you see even the distribution of wealth, which has been a common topic in our own society lately. The distribution of wealth here was controlled and not, uh, was not controlled or uh, distributed evenly. In a communistic, socialistic system, distribution of wealth is distributed evenly upon everybody. But here, that's not the case. Those who had didn't receive. It was those who were in need received as their need was. And so as they give of their stuff freely and voluntarily, then those who had the greatest needs, those needs were met. And those who who didn't have needs, they were giving. You see, God had brought the church together in such a way that they could operate in unity so that no one had a need. The gift was we all help each other. 
Some of us have enough to help. Some of us need to be helped. That's the beauty of the church because we're united in these things. It was distributed to each as had need. This is radically different than communism or socialism. This is not force. This is generosity. This is not, this is not compulsory. This is voluntary. This is a heart that is built up. That's what we see. And what this passage teaches us is an outright rejection of materialism. An outright rejection of materialism. Materialism is the belief that accumulation of wealth is the central identity of a people. The more you have, the more powerful you are. The more you can pull together, your identity is found in what you own and what your bottom line is. That's materialism. You're identified by what you own and what you can grab. And this passage goes dead set against that kind of materialism. Materialism believes that power is formed with wealth. And in many ways, that's how the world works, isn't it? We see it. You see money, you see power. Those two things go together, so you believe those things are there. But here, in Acts chapter 4, the church is embracing, embracing not materialism, but they're embracing the generosity of the Lord God himself. You see, God is a generous God. Have any of y'all ever heard the fact that you can't outgive God? And, and, and we don't even have to look to the cross to see that. Surely the cross is the greatest display of God's generosity to a people, how he sends his own son so that they may have life. But think about your everyday life. In everyday life, we recognize that everything we have comes from God. Every bit that we have comes from him. Everything you have belongs to him. And Paul says this in, in, to the Corinthians. What do you have that you did not receive? It's a rhetorical question. Because everything you have, you've received in some way. Even, as I've said before, even the breath you breathe is a gift from God. Even the very fact that your heart is beating right now is a gift from God. You don't control that. He controls that. So every moment of life is a gift from God. Every treasure is from above. Every good thing is from him. And so the fact that you can work or you can even provide for your family is a gift from God. So therefore, everything we have belongs to him. You cannot outgive him. He has given it all. So what we have then becomes not our own to identify us, but becomes our possession to use in the stewardship of the advancement of the kingdom of God. Even our breath. How can we use our life to advance the kingdom of God, which has been given to us? How can we use our finances to advance the kingdom of God? We become a conduit, if you will, for the blessings of God to flow through. God has blessed us, so we bless others. Back in chapter 2, it says that the people were filled with glad and generous hearts. This should be the description of every believer. Circumstances do not define us. Christ defines us. And so if Christ defines us, then we have hearts who are glad because God has saved us through his son Christ. And those hearts that are glad turn into generous hearts that give this my friends, does not come natural. This is what Packer was saying earlier. This is supernatural. This is why the church must look different. The Spirit works within us so as to turn our hearts away from the materialistic ideas of this world, to turn our hearts to the kingdom of God where we store up our treasures. We put our treasures in heaven, not here on earth. 
So whatever you grab or whatever you hold on to, this on earth, moth and rust will destroy, Peter says. But in heaven, it is kept safe for you. Our treasure is there. Therefore, we hold loosely with all that we have here. We become conduits for it with glad and generous hearts. This is supernatural. Only the Spirit working in our life can produce this. And be honest, in many ways, those of us who have Christ and received him and the Spirit dwells within us, it's still hard sometimes. Because we think that holding on to these things gives us a confidence for tomorrow. We think that stuff secures us. And by all means, you should prepare for retirement. By all means, you should know that tomorrow your life may be asked of you. And so here we come at life not holding on, but, but trusting God and letting go. This church, Taylor's First Baptist, is a generous church. In fact, we're getting ready today after this service to adopt a ministry plan for next year. A ministry plan that shows that every dime goes toward ministry. And we need your help to help fund that as we seek to reach not only in our community with this plan, but into the nations, more people for the gospel. We give away more than one-fifth of our operating budget for missions in the advancement of the kingdom outside of us. That's generosity, friends. And I'm thankful for that generosity. And even as we close this year, our prayer is that God would give us glad and generous hearts to reach more, to gain more. God not only knows what you give, he also knows what you have left in your pocket. And so ultimately, ultimately here in Acts, it teaches us that when the Spirit dwells within us, our generosity becomes who we are and what we're defined by. A great note here, by the way, just on this, most of y'all know because it's caused some ripple effects throughout our church and what we do, that our fellowship hall is under renovation, a project that's over a million dollars because nothing's cheap anymore, amen? A project that's over a million dollars, but even in that, by God's grace, we don't have to borrow a dime. Through your generosity, it has been completely paid for. And so we rejoice in these things and we celebrate it and we look forward to what more can we do. We need you. As well as I need you. The church needs you. Taylor's First Baptist needs you. But the kingdom of God needs his people to have glad and generous hearts. The Lord builds his church with that generosity. And he has from the beginning. We saw it here in Acts 4. But finally, number three. The Spirit gives power to the witness of the church. The Spirit gives unity. The Spirit gives generosity. The Spirit gives power to the witness of the church. We see it here when he says, One heart, one soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 33 here tells us that it's the resurrection that is the clearest demonstration of the power of God to bring life to those who were once dead in their trespasses and sins. The power of God to change your heart and change your life is most clearly seen in the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Paul calls it or says there is where the Spirit's power was on display. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. 
It's been the heart of the preaching of Peter as he comes. It's one whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. He said that not only to those in Acts 2. He said it to those in the temple. He said it to the Sanhedrin. He continues that theme to say this Jesus is alive and the resurrection has happened. So for the early church and for us today, the very proof that our testimony is true and real lies on the very fact that Jesus Christ is alive. And remember, remember what I've said before. That's no small thing. I've heard people say, if, if, if you could prove that Jesus was in the grave and you found his bones somewhere one day, would you still be a Christian because of all of the good teachings of Christianity? And my answer and response would be, no. All of Christianity is built upon the proclamation that Jesus Christ is no longer in the grave. In fact, Paul says this, if he's still dead, then eat, drink, and be merry. Don't follow him. He was a liar from the beginning. But if he's alive, it proves everything he said and did was true. So if you believe Christ Jesus is alive, it's the proof that we need that his power is great enough not only to raise Jesus from the dead, but to bring you and transform your life from death to life, out of darkness into light. That's the power we see. And so as the church goes, what they're proclaiming is that power. Peter stands in front of him and says, here is the power of God that Christ Jesus is not dead, although you put him on the cross. He's been made alive through God himself who raised him up. There is the power of God. Romans 8, Paul writing and talking about the indwelling of the Spirit. He says that the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit that is dwelling in us, the one who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, also raises us up and gives us life. And that's the power we proclaim. And as Paul writes to Timothy, he says, God did not give you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, as the Scriptures proclaim, dwells in each and every one of his children. That same power, that same Spirit dwells in us. And so we proclaim the Word of God with power. Why? Because the Spirit dwelling within us gives us that that power. We proclaim the testimony. The Spirit works in hearts and lives that hear That becomes the whole theme of Acts, really. The power of God proclaimed through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Let me say here, too, that it's the resurrection that is the basis for all of this. We were discussing this uh, amongst our our staff and leadership this week on how it goes, you know, these three things. Unity, generosity, power of testimony, and, and, and great grace was upon them all. It says, and then in verse 34, it comes back. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So why does it come back to that? Why doesn't it put that up there with the generosity piece, right? Why doesn't that follow verse 32? I believe it doesn't follow it because of this proclamation of the power of God through the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is the basis for all of this. Why are we united? Because Jesus is alive. Why do we become generous? Because Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, therefore, we recognize that our inheritance, the material things of this world that's passed down one to another, our inheritance is not of this world. 
In fact, Peter puts it this way. He says, we were born again according to the great mercy that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We have an inheritance that's not here. We have an inheritance that is there. And if our inheritance is there, then we hold on to nothing here. We don't store it up. We don't keep it. We use it as a conduit of the blessing of God to advance the kingdom of God so others may believe. We fight for unity so others may believe. We have glad and generous hearts so others may believe. We speak the testimony of the resurrection of God with power so that others may believe. And at the very heart of all of this is the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Here's why I can be generous. Because I have the unsurmountable wealth of Christ Jesus waiting for me. I don't need to hold on to anything else. I don't need to have it. I don't need to consider it my bottom line. I have that inheritance where moth and rust cannot destroy. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It never passes away. It doesn't gain 10% in inflation this year, if you know what I mean. Always, always it is what it is, the great and glory of powerful blessing of the resurrection of Christ waiting for me. That's my inheritance. So I hold on to nothing here. I give freely with a glad and generous heart knowing my inheritance is waiting in heaven. The resurrection becomes the very basis for all of this. Our unity because Christ is alive and we celebrate being made alive in him. Our generosity because Christ is alive and our inheritance is there kept for us. We hold on to nothing here. The power of the testimony, because Christ is alive, so that's what we proclaim. Paul says, I get rid of everything in Philippians. We went through Philippians earlier in this year. He says, I I consider it all as loss, as rubbish, so that I may know the power of the resurrection of Christ. All of his worldly treasures, he says, is garbage when I know the power of the resurrection. So it is for the church of Christ. And the only question I have for you, if you you're want to fight for that unity, if you're looking for a glad and generous heart, if, you're, if you want to have power in your testimony, the only question I have is, do you know the power of the resurrection of Christ in your life? Have you passed from death to life? Have you believed in Christ? Because that's exactly what Jesus says. If anyone believes in me, if anyone trusts in me, they pass from death to life. The inheritance that you have now is dependent upon the belief that you have in Christ Jesus. And so if you believe, if you believe in the power of the resurrection, then you have life. And so may none of us leave out of here not believing. And if we believe... May we lean into what the resurrection means in our everyday walk. May we lean into it knowing that because Jesus is alive, I fight for unity with my brothers and sisters. I want the world to know I fight for those things. I can come in humility because Christ Jesus is alive. I can come in gentleness because Christ Jesus is alive. I fight to maintain that unity because Jesus is alive. I have a glad and generous heart recognizing that he is my inheritance and nothing else. Because Jesus is alive, I do not hesitate to proclaim the power of his testimony. Please, if you do not know the power of the resurrection this morning, lean into that. Josh, what does lean into mean? That means trust yourself in it. 
leaning into something. We lose our balance on our feet. We lean into something to hold on to us. Trust yourself in the resurrection of Christ. Lean completely upon him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness to us and your provision of Jesus Christ, how you have provided him, you've provided everything we need. And so, God, may your church, this church here, Father, be united, united in the proclamation of who Jesus is and what he has done. May we, Father, have glad and generous hearts, just as you saw in Acts uh, chapter 2. Father, may that be said of us at Taylor's First. They have glad and generous hearts. Father, Father, may also we not hesitate to proclaim the power of the testimony of a resurrected Savior. And God, if someone is here today that does not know that power, may today be the day that they give themselves again to it. All for your glory. All for your name we pray these things. In Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.